Well, you know what I think. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to deny that. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Please do not go religious. Somebody's going to hell over there. He better not. Even the devil will speak the truth for, for his own purposes. This is war. Accept it. Back to Jerusalem podcast. Yeah, I'm back and I'm armed with righteousness. With your host, Eugene Bach. He just seems like he's got it all figured out. He's a righteous dude. Yep. Hello and welcome to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, and I'm coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of the U.S. this time. And I have just arrived to be able to do a book that we're writing that I'm super excited about, about a dear friend that I've met not too long ago by the name of Miriam Ibrahim. If you haven't heard of her story, please look her up. It's an amazing, amazing testimony. She is a believer in Christ, strong believer that was told in Sudan, she's from Sudan, she was told by the government of Sudan that she had to renounce her faith and become a Muslim. And when she refused, she was thrown into prison together with her one-year-old son, shackled to the ground, and then forced to give birth to her second child while in prison. When she refused to give up Christ, and accept Islam. She was sentenced to 100 lashes and death by hanging. And she was told that her children would have their names removed, their birth certificates would be thrown away, and they would grow up with no names, no mother, no father, and as Muslims. It's an amazing testimony that she has. I can't wait to share it with the world, but it's one of the main reasons that I traveled to Sudan. So I went to Khartoum to spend time in her hometown, to spend time in the place where she had been in prison to kind of get a feel. And I spent a lot of time there praying uh, with the, the individuals that I was able to meet while I was there. I went into her church. I met together with the priest that now runs her church. And it was a, an amazing time. Now, I've been to Sudan before. I've been to North Sudan before, but I've never been to Khartoum. So this was the very first time that I've been to Khartoum. And while I was there, I got to see things that I have wanted to see for a very long, long time. This was the best time, by the way, to ever travel to Sudan because right now many of the countries around the world are closed, right? If you're not European, try traveling to Europe right now. It's not easy. While I'm doing this podcast, we are still basically in travel restrictions because of COVID-19. If you're not American and you don't have family in America, try traveling right now to America, even for vacation. It's not easy easy and sometimes it's not even possible. You can't go to China, you can't go to Hong Kong unless you have a work permit or a work visa or a residence visa. There are many places around the world that are shut down, but there are many that have never heard the gospel before. They're completely unreached that are open and Sudan is one of them. One of the great things about being in Sudan is that they were welcoming me with open arms. Of course, they wouldn't have been if they knew that I was connected with Miriam. But when I got there, I was fascinated because I went to go see the pyramids. For those of you that don't know and haven't listened to my last podcast, there are more pyramids in Sudan than there are in Egypt, even though the ones in Egypt are very famous and known around the world. If you ever see a picture of the pyramids in the desert, you'll automatically think, oh, that's in Egypt but there are several hundred of these pyramids in Sudan. 
and I wanted to go and see them. And it was amazing. It was an amazing time to go there. I was the only foreigner in many of the areas that I went to that was there to see these amazing pyramids. So I, I go there and one of the things that I was very fascinated about was the, the former Christian kingdoms of Sudan. Sudan used to be a Christian nation or Christian nations used to be a conglomerate of Christian nations. Christian nations not conquered by Christian military people, but conquered by missionaries who went and gave their life and was able to convert the people into Christianity by merely presenting the love of God. When we look at the different kingdoms, I was introduced to the Mercuria kingdom, the Nobadia kingdom, and the Kush kingdom. Now, of course, I'm familiar with the name of Cush just because that's the grandson of Noah, right? So I was familiar with the Cush, the Cushites, the Cushites that are mentioned in the Bible several times. So I'm sitting there, I'm studying about the Cushites, and I learn about these other kingdoms as well, these three Christian kingdoms that flourished. They were wealthy. They had massive militaries. They grew in science, math, human rights. And what do you know about them? almost nothing. Why? Why is it that we know so little about Sudan? Because when they were conquered by the Muslims in a jihad, all of their history was destroyed. On this trip, the one thing that stuck out to me over and over again was that we have lost history. As Christians, we have lost our history. As Christians, we have lost more history than we currently have. We have lost more history than we currently have. One of the cool things about being on this trip, I kid you not, I've always looked at hieroglyphics as kind of this you know, weird, scientific, Indiana Jones type of writing, right? I've never even thought about you know, trying to read it. It's never crossed my mind. But because I was going from pyramid to pyramid from uh, ancient religious site to ancient, re ancient religious site. Like two weeks I was traveling to all these different historical sites that were littered with hieroglyphics everywhere. And one of the things that started to happen is that the hieroglyphics began to make sense to me. I grew addicted. I kid you not. I started to read hieroglyphics. I mean, I'm not fluent, right? I'm not reading Shakespearean hieroglyphics, but I started to pick up the words, the sounds, and the meaning. And I, and I felt so good that I was able to understand sentences in hieroglyphics. I was like, what? I grew addicted to this. I mean, when I started to read these hieroglyphics, one of the things that I realized is the history of Sudan. Now, please stay with me. This might seem like a little bit boring. It's about history. Please stay with me. This is essential for all of our Christian listeners because when I read the writings of the Sudanese, I knew something was gone. Something was missing. They, the Sudanese, they knew something that I don't know. I'm telling you, the Sudanese discovered things that we will never know again. God gave them things. I am convinced that God gave them revelations 
that they wrote about, they talked about, they explored, and it was destroyed by the enemy himself so that we would never discover it again. When I read the writings of the Sudanese, I understand that they knew something that is now gone forever. When I read the writings of the Chinese, I understand that they knew something, but it is gone forever. When I read the writings of the Persians, I understand that they knew something, but it's gone forever. I want to read you a sentence in hieroglyphics that I can now write that I read over and over again. And you tell me if this doesn't give you chill bumps. I'm going to read. Now, I would love to show you this in a video form, but I can't. And I recorded a video on my phone of me actually reading from the, the, the walls in one of the ancient temples that we went into. And in the ancient temple, I read this. The beloved of God gives life forever. That was its own sentence standing alone in one of the temples. Not God. The beloved of God gives life forever. I started to see other things as well. Things that showed me that Satan himself perverted God's word. What makes the Bible so special? Guys, the thing that makes the Jewish people so special and the Bible so special is that they as a people group suffered from the beginning of time. They have suffered to be able to get us the unadulterated words of God into our hands so that we would know who our maker is. That has been attempted by, by, by many uh, people groups around the world, but there's always been some sort of pollution over time into that word of God, because I believe this is, this is something that you might disagree with, but I believe that God gave his word and his teaching to Noah and that Noah taught his family, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, those three sons had the word of God. They would have heard about the creation of Adam and Eve. They would have heard about the Garden of Eden. They would have heard about the very first murder. They would have heard about the fall of man. They would have heard about the very first things to take place in the book of Genesis that is written about by Moses. Uh, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth would have been familiar with these stories. But their desire or their ability to pass this down from generation to generation, I believe, was not complete. And so God spoke to each generation independently. And as he spoke independently to the different generations, I believe that there was truth that came out, but then that truth was polluted. That's why I believe I can walk into a Sudanese temple and read the hieroglyphics that says, the beloved of God gives life forever. One of the things that I notice is that the West Bank of the Nile is considered to be the land of the dead. And as I start thinking about the Back to Jerusalem movement moving westward, going from Jerusalem and moving around the world going westward, forgive me 
If I immediately am shocked when I learn that in ancient culture, when it comes to the Nile, the Acropolises, the cities, were built on the east side. But when you die, you go over the river to the west. The west was always considered to be the land of the gods. That your body goes from east and moves west to be closer to God. This is directly in line with the Jewish temple. When those that went in to pray to God, they had to enter in from the eastern opening and move westward to the west wall, to the most western part of the temple in order to be close to the Holy of Holies. That was a westward movement. Every single time the priest of the holiest of holies moved into the temple, they moved in this westward direc direction, and they did the same in Egypt and Sudan. For what reason? This seemed to be more than just a coincidence for me. When I was talking to an Arab Muslim, he told me about the babies being born and said, do you know that even today when the babies are born, the mother will make a sign of the cross to protect their babies and the mothers stay home for 40 days. Exactly 40 days because that is the trial. That is the temptation. That is when the enemy attacks during those 40 days. So the mother stays home during those 40 days to protect her child, making the sign of a cross on the baby's forehead. And after that, they go to the Nile and wash the baby in almost a baptism-like manner. This happens even today in Sudan among the Muslims. As I started to read, the, the word forever in hieroglyphics is called the ankh or the ankh. The ankh is this, is, is this key of life. And you've seen it many times. Anytime you've seen hieroglyphics or even, you know, kind of the playing around of the Egyptian symbolism, you will see the ink. The ink is this cross. It is the sign of the cross. And that means life. The symbol of the cross means life. In the Egyptian hieroglyphics art, if you look it up, you'll see that the cross is life. And by extension, it is the symbol of life itself. And so that's why this cross is being held by every one of the pharaohs when they die. When a pharaoh dies, they are buried with this ink, this cross, which means life, and they hold it close to them. And that got me into studying more about this. Not, now, I'm not an expert in this, and many people that are experts in this might be listening to this and laughing a little bit because I might mispronounce some of the things wrong. But I traveled around with a hieroglyphics expert. That One of the great things about traveling in Sudan right now is that there are so few tourists. So the normal tour guides are gone because they just don't have any customers. Those that are doing archaeological research are not bringing in money and they're not able to do their studies. So many of these researchers are helping people give tours, people like me. So I wasn't given my tour by some shaggy tour guide. This was actually an archaeological research professor guy that has assisted many different uh, 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 
digs, I guess you would say, like archaeological digs, findings, uh, discoveries. Uh, so he has been on all of these different ventures doing the digs and all of these other things. So he really knew what he was talking about. And he began to tell me about the story of uh, Osiris and Isis and their son. And when I heard about it, like many people, I'm right away, I'm intrigued because you do hear it, the gospel story in the story that predates Jesus by several hundred years. You have this story that, that predates Jesus. But remember, there were individuals that I believe God spoke to to prepare for the coming of the Messiah who did escape with his family to Egypt when he was a baby. So you have the name Osiris, who is called the Lord of all, good being, Lord of lords, the king of eternity, the great one, the one who takes the seat, the begetter. He begets. And that goes back to the hieroglyphics that I was reading about the, the, the begotten or the beloved. So here we have the one who begets or the begotten, the everlasting ruler, the living God, the God above all gods, the Lord of lords. These are all the official names that are called for Osiris. And so Osiris's birth was announced by wise men that saw three stars, and those three stars are called the Mintanka, the Analam, and the Osiris. And it had a star in the east, which signified the birth that led men to the east. Or, I'm sorry, led men from the east to the west. And so again, we have this, this, this picture that is mirrored in Christianity. In some ways. Now, let me finish before you go off and be like, well, there's nothing stolen. I can tell you how these are all different. Of course you can. I can as well. I can pick this apart. I'm cherry picking this story to show you that there are similarities that do overlap. Now, there's a lot of crazy stuff that takes place, including some crazy incestual stuff that takes place in these stories that I'm not going to touch on, that I read in depth while I was in Sudan because I had absolutely nothing else to do while I was there. But Osiris's birth, or Osiris's brother, rather, was a guy by the name of Seth. And Seth was extremely jealous of his brother, who was the ruler over their area. And so he hatched a plot to kill his brother. And he killed his brother, but Isis, the wife, who's also the sister, so we have this love triangle that's taking place here, of brother-sister marriage with brother-killing brother and sister then protecting or trying to protect brother and then sister being inseminated by brother. So Osiris is the Lord of Lords and he is killed by his brother Seth and his wife, which is also his sister, was able to become supernaturally impregnated by the Lord of Lords and gave him a son Horus. And Seth searched for Horus so that he could kill him when he was just a baby. But Isis was able to protect her son from Seth until uh, Horus was old enough to defeat Seth. So when I see this dynamic of an enemy 
that rises up against the Lord of Lords. And then the Lord of Lords supernaturally impregnates a woman and the offspring of that woman then grows and defeats uh, Seth. Then I, forgive me, when I can see a polluted message, but a message nonetheless. Which begs the question, because a lot of people are like, well, yeah, Christianity is just a knockoff. I mean, there are many people that will tell you that, yeah, 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 the ideas of Christianity have been around for a very long time. Wrong. Wrong. There are ideas, there are teachings, there are, there are so many things that are unique with Jesus Christ, and many historical revisionists try to stretch findings, and they even go as far as to make up stuff to make it sound like Christ copied after this ancient Egyptian Sudanese religion, which is not true. Because one of the great things about the disciples of Jesus Christ, the ones that went around sharing this information, was that they were unlearned individuals. They were fishermen. Jesus was the son of a carpenter. A carpenter would not have been an educated individual that would have been able to teach his son the writings of hieroglyphics from the Egyptians. He would not have been an individual that would have been very well versed in world religions because he was a Jew and his job was to focus on doing carpentry, which was a full-time job and not one that is known for literacy, not one that is known for academics, not one that is known for telling stories from other religions, but actually one that is expected to be very conservative in their teachings of Judaism. The fact that Joseph was a carpenter means that he was a Jew's Jew. He would have been more of the conservative type. He would have been one of the blue-collar workers, not somebody who would have taught his son these ideas. And remember, it wasn't just Jesus that was teaching these things. There were many people that heard the message of Jesus. And at no time was anything about the Egyptian religions shared. So why are there these similarities? Well, I have a theory. You may not like my theory. You may not agree with my theory. You may have a lot of information to tell me how my theory is stupid wrong. But I believe that every generation that is ever born are loved by God. Every single person that is given birth in this world, and even those that are killed before they are born, is loved of God. He knows our name, and He knows how many hairs are on our head before we are ever born, before we are ever thought of. He knows us intimately and loves us. So His idea of allowing us to be born is not just say, well, you know, there's nobody that's going to share with you the truth, so you're just screwed. I believe in situations where individuals have not heard the truth, God supernaturally speaks to them because they are His creation. And He loves them just as much as He loves me and you. 
And so out of those supernatural revelations, do you not think that it is possible that there were people that sought after him not knowing who he was? People that sought after God knowing that there's something there, something that I identify with, something that my spirit is drawn towards, but I don't know who he is because no one has ever told me. No one has ever shared with me. How will they know unless they've heard? And how will they hear unless someone is sent? If no one is sent, do you think that they are forgotten of God? I don't. You might. I don't. I have not been convinced that they have been born to die and suffer an eternal damnation, but that God has revealed himself. To some, he has revealed himself much. To others, he has revealed himself little. To whom little is given, little is required. To he whom much is given, much is required. Spider-Man, first movie. When I see this religious mythology, I see God speaking to people and people just not able to decipher it, but doing their darndest to decipher it. The parallel in the story of Jesus on top of these mythologies is not because the story of the gospel was copied from these earlier mythologies, but instead God was speaking to his people and his people created these mythologies because it was from the words of God. And over time, these mythologies became corrupted. Over time, these mythologies became perverted because people are dirty with sin. And sin keeps us from hearing clearly from God. And those that are closer to God in one generation may find themselves further from God as we move down the generations. Do we not see that in the West today? Where our forefathers spent much of their time seeking after God, their hobbies, their free time, their interests, their passions were to learn more about God. And then as time has gone down, we have seen that future generations, the generation that we are in right now, for instance, has less of a desire to seek after God, less of a desire to spend their free time learning more about who he is, less of a desire to spend their passionate energy on trying to seek out truth. In fact, we spend most of our energy trying to seek out lies and justifying those lies and denying truth and calling truth the lie. God speaks to generations. And if we can learn more about our history, I believe that we can learn more about who God is. Even in our historical failures. See, right now we live in a generation that has a big cancel culture where the people that are in charge in certain uh, REMS, people that are in charge of certain uh, government facilities and, 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 and certain academic facilities and, 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 and certain IT facilities are wanting to block out certain information and they want to do it for your good. How nice of them. How thoughtful. Thank you. They want to block out the evil teachings of the past like green eggs and ham by Dr. Seuss because your mind might be polluted by this hideous, lying, gross material. And if you defend it, 
If you say, no, I want my kids to read Green Eggs and Hand, that's because you're a racist. That's because you're a Nazi. By the way, the writings of the Nazi are not being blocked. But the writings of Christians are. God speaks to us in generations. Do you think it's so strange that when God spoke, he would say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because he was the God that spoke and it echoed in generations. The words that he spoke to Abraham was for Isaac. The words that he spoke to Abraham was for Jacob. The God that spoke to Abraham gave him words that were for you and for me. Those words were not limited in time and space. They are for us as well. He speaks to generations and our reaction to them, both good and bad, are necessary for us to know. We absolutely need to know both our victories and our failures. We need to know our sins and our righteous actions. Satan doesn't want you to know either. Because if you know your failures, you can learn from the failures of past generations, and Satan wants you to continue to fail. He wants to continue using the same old attacks that he's used for generations, that he's used for several thousand years. He wants to use them on you. You think that the attack that he's using on you is new, but it's not. You think that the grace and the mercy and the salvation that God is offering to you is new, but it's not. God offered to the generations before us, and he offers it to us today. Satan attacked the generations before us, and he attacks us in the same way today. He doesn't want to be creative. Creative takes energy, and he doesn't want to use that energy. So instead, what he does is he destroys history, and he uses those that follow him to destroy it for him. And sometimes he even convinces us as Christians to destroy our own history. God pity us. I saw this a lot in Sudan. Because in Sudan, whenever I saw an Islamic mosque, I was reminded by those that showed me the mosque that under the mosque was a church. You see, Islam builds their mosques on top of churches and temples. The reason that they do that is because the church, when it's turned into ashes, the Muslims want to make sure, guided by the enemy, that the Christians do not remember their history, that everything about their history will be destroyed in the third and fourth and fifth generations will not even know that they existed. If you want to go about digging up artifacts, then you have to destroy a holy site, and God forbid. Guys, this is the very thing that we're looking for, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The Temple of God is being covered right now by a mosque. And you cannot dig, you cannot do any archaeological research in that area because of the holiness of the mosque. It was done on purpose. That way, the Muslims that stand in the mosque can tell you there's no temple here. The Jews have no right to claim this area as their capital city. This belongs to the Palestinians because this is the history of Jerusalem. It's a lie. But it's a lie that is built on the ignorance of history. 
An Arab during this time in Sudan told me that they are teaching English in some of the schools, but there is much fear because they don't want the children in Sudan to learn English for God forbid that the people would lose their own language and heritage. I was like, okay, wait, you got to tell me that again. What? He said, we don't want our children to learn English at too early of an age for fear that they will lose their own language and their own heritage. Now, I didn't say this, but I was like, dude, what are you talking about? The, the, right now, you are communicating with everybody around you in Arabic. You think that is the native language of Sudan? That's not, even the, that's not even the native culture. Arabs are from Arabia, the Arab Peninsula. The Arab language is from the Arab Peninsula. That's the Middle East. That's not Africa. It's definitely not Central Africa. Their language, their culture, their heritage was erased when the Muslims created jihad and came invading into Sudan and killed out those that refused to convert to Islam. They destroyed the churches and built their mosques on top and tried to convince the people that there were never Christians here. Your heritage, your culture, your language is Islam. And you say, well, Islam's not a language. The heck it isn't. Do you think the prayers that are offered at the mosque every day, whether it's in Indonesia or Pakistan or Malaysia, is done in the local languages? If you believe that, it's because you're a freaking moron and you don't know. No, the prayers are offered up in Arabic by non-Arab speakers, and you can only read the Quran in Arabic by non-Arab speakers. Everywhere that Islam goes, the people must, 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 must speak and pray in a language that is not their own, that most of them do not even understand. History was destroyed. Here's, here's the thing that kind of took the cake for me. I, I went to a grave site by a famous Mahdian cartoon. This, the, the Mahdi gravesite or the Mahdi tomb is very, it's one of the most famous sites in all of Khartoum. So I go there and when I, when I, I went there, it's this, it's this, you know, big mosque and I spent way more time there than I wanted to, to be honest. I wanted to leave earlier. I kind of got the idea. I was really bored, but the, the, I, I didn't want to be rude. So I, sh I pretend I faked my interest. I was, I was genuinely interested for about the first 30 minutes. After about two hours being at this gravesite, I'm like, dude, I'm done. I'm ready to go. And I was like, ooh, isn't it hot out here? And it was hot. So I was like, I, th I think I'm, I'm ready to go to kind of find some shade. And they're like, well, there's some shade inside the, 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 the grave site area. I'm like, no, you know, let's, let's jump in the car and drive back to the hotel. While I was there, I was taught about this famous Mahdi. He was, he, he is a famous rebellion, rebellion leader that was able to kick out the British. He was able to bring Islam for a long period of time into Sudan and kind of solidify it in Khartoum. 
And I, at first I understood, okay, you guys believe that he is a hero because he fought the colonialists. You know, this is a, this is a common a theme all around the world. It doesn't matter whether you're in America, because I'm an American, right? So I can understand defeating the British is fun. It's fun to talk about. Fighting the British, defeating them, sending them back home with, with their tail between their legs is, is, is a nice pastime. Anybody that's ever done the Freedom Trail in Boston, it's definitely worth the trip. And you get a British bash the entire time. And if you go to India, you can see the same thing. If you go to Hong Kong, you can see the same thing. There's the British bashing is a historical pastime for many peoples around the world. Because to be honest, many of us have little man syndrome because Britain was a great empire. And everybody wants to think that they beat the great empire. But a lot of our notions are false. It's kind of like Tyson, right? When Mike Tyson was the champion, they had to put Mike Tyson, when he was arrested for rape, they had to put him in a separate holding cell where he was by himself for the entire time that he served his sentence. Why? Because it was too dangerous for him to be in the general population because there were going to be people that wanted to make a name by saying, I beat up Mike Tyson. When they actually didn't, but they would have taken advantage of him in any way possible just to have that notoriety that I beat Mike Tyson. Many countries around the world are opportunistic in that same way that they wanted to brag about the time that they beat the British. And that was what I witnessed in Sudan. So I get it. I understood it. I related to it in some weird, strange way. And when I'm being told about Mahdi, I'm being told that Mahdi was this rebellion leader that kicked the colonialists out and he was even able to behead one of their famous loved generals, General Charles Gordon, who was the governor of Sudan, sent by the Brits to rule over these poor peasant people. And that the governor, uh, General Charles Gordon, was because I guess they call him both governor and general because he rate, rates both. Um, where he, he was beheaded is now the location of the presidential palace. So this is a big deal. Like this Gordon was a really bad guy. He was a colonialist and they were able to gain liberation for the Sudanese by killing him. Except that's not the real story. In my boredom, I began to look up Governor General Charles Gordon. And believe me when I say that I was okay with the story that I was being given until I started to read about Governor General Charles Gordon. As I read about him, I realized that he was nothing like the man that was being sold to me while be walking around this famous gravesite of the Mahdi. And when I say famous gravesite, I'm talking about this is a shrine where there were people outside praying to his shrine. Muslims that believed that he was the Messiah, which is the meaning for Mahdi. Mahdi isn't actually his name, it was his title. And so there are people that are outside of the shrine praying and also reading his book as if it were a type of religious writing equal to the Quran or the Hadiths. So they're walking around praying, chanting, reading, some people are even sleeping overnight there to make sure that they are protecting this shrine of Mahdi. And the nemesis 
of Mahdi is General Governor Gordon. And Gordon was the nemesis that was killed, that was conquered. Righteousness prevailed. But when I began to read about General Gordon, I realized that he was a hero. He had actually served for many years inside of China, dressed like the Chinese, spoke Chinese, and was able to broker peace and bring about peace in areas that were being attacked by cults during the Taiping Rebellion. In early 1884, Gordon was sent to Khartoum with instructions to secure the evacuation of loyal soldiers and civilians because England could see that there was a big rebellion that was rising up in Sudan. Why? Why was General Gordon sent there to evacuate 2,500 British civilians? Because he believed that the people the British believed that the people of Sudan needed to be free. And the rebels didn't want freedom for the Sudanese. You see, during the 1870s, the European initiatives against the Arab slave trade caused an economic crisis that rippled everywhere throughout northern Sudan. And the Arabs needed this slave trade. That was where their money came from. That was where their business came from. That is what their profession was. And Mahdi believed that as a Muslim, it was his right. It was the Muslims' rights. It was his fellow Arab rights that they could enslave and had to enslave non-Muslims. And the Christians stopping this slave trade needed to be destroyed. Because of course the Christians wanted to stop it because they were part of the slaves. And so the Arab slave trade in Northern Africa was massive. And England was against it, but they were not, they were not as committed to it as General Gordon. And so after General Gordon evacuated 2,500 civilians, the government of England told Gordon, come back to England now, your job is done. He said, no. And this general, this loyal general, disobeyed the orders from his own nation. And he stayed with only a handful of soldiers, knowing that he was signing his death warrant. Because he believed that God made all men free. So slavery was the basis of the Sudanese economy in Gordon's religious convictions told him that he had to stay to end the slave trade, even if it meant losing his life. This made a lot of people with a lot of power and a lot of money really mad. One of them was the rebellion leader, Mahdi. And Mahdi's men surrounded the city of Khartoum and they offered Gordon a way out. They said, Gordon, if you will accept Islam, and Allah as your God, we will let you live. Gordon wrote back a one-word message. No. Before that, he was captured and he was beheaded. This history is important because today, even today, there is Arab slave trade among the Muslims in Sudan. 
and they trade Africans as their slaves. Read anything by the Lost Boys, where the their entire villages were raided from the north that came in shouting Allah Akbar, killing all of the men, taking the children as slaves, and raping the women and making them bear their children. Guys, right now I am writing a book about Miriam Ibrahim, and Sudan would like nothing more than for Miriam's story to go away. The enemy, Satan himself, wants nothing more than to, to, to destroy our history so that we as believers are ignorant and we have to relearn it. What did the Egyptians know? What did the Sudanese know? What were they trying to communicate to us in hieroglyphics that we will never understand? Yes, hieroglyphics were a different religion than Christianity. I'm not saying in any shape, form, or fashion that you should go and pray to the mythological gods of the Egyptians. God forbid that. What I'm saying is that we can see elements of truth. Why? Because every good lie is based on truth. And Satan perverted God's truth to tell us lies. But the best lie is that which you've never even heard. Silence. Erasing of history. As Christians, we have a duty for, to protect free speech. And free speech means knowing our history and not destroying our history. It's what the enemy does. That was a lesson that I learned while in Sudan. I want to thank you so much for listening to the Back to Jerusalem podcast. I pray that this has been as much of a blessing for you as it has been for me. Again, I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of the U.S. God bless. God bless.